So this morning, as I mentioned as I was reading, we're looking at John chapter 6, verses 47 to 59. We read a larger section to give us a sense of the context, but we're focusing on 47 to 59. In verse 47, Jesus wraps up a section of his teaching in which he was teaching plainly and non-metaphorically. Jesus was not drawing metaphors in the preceding section. He says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Whoever looks on the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. He's saying those kinds of things. Those are not metaphors. He's saying, look, if you come to me in faith, I will save you. He's telling very plainly, non-metaphorically, Um, that that is the way of salvation, is to come in faith, to believe in Him, and then to have life. So in John chapter 47, pardon me, John chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Very, very simple. If you don't believe in Jesus, you do not have eternal life. If you do believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Very, very simple. Jesus summarizes that non-metaphorical, plain section by just laying that out there as a summary statement. Then in verse 48, he returns to a metaphor that was begun earlier in the chapter. I am the bread of life. And when he returns to this metaphor, it's not in order to change the subject. He doesn't begin talking about something else. He's continuing to talk about the same things, but in a different way. Instead of saying plainly and non-metaphorically that if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life, He's now going to speak metaphorically about that very same principle. By telling people to feed on Him. By telling people to eat His flesh and drink His blood. He's not saying something different than He has been saying. He's saying the same thing a different way. Whoever believes has eternal life. And this brings us to the first of four things that we'll see this morning from this passage about feeding on Christ. The first is feeding on Christ is another way of describing belief. Look at verses 47 through 51. As I, I already spoke about 47 and 48, so really look at 49 to 51. He says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He has just told us that the difference between living forever and not living forever is what? Belief. He has just finished telling us that the difference between living forever and not living forever is belief. So now when he talks about eating, and he says the difference between eating and not eating is the difference between eternal life or not eternal life, we ought to infer that he's still talking about the same realities. There's not two ways to eternal life. One is believing. Whoever believes has eternal life. Another is eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. There's not two ways, as if you can choose your path. 
Either believe in Jesus or eat his flesh and drink his blood. To believe is to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What is meant by eating his flesh and drinking his blood is believing. Augustine or Augustine or Augustine, pardon me. However you say it. I've never actually heard anyone say Augustine. It's pronounced two different ways, not three different ways. However you say it. Augustine or Augustine said, Believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten. The unifying theme in John 6 is that we are to believe on Jesus in order to live. And Jesus says it both non-metaphorically and metaphorically. These verses teach us the same truths in metaphorical fashion as we're taught non-metaphorically in verses 36 to 47. So settle that in your mind as we come to this section about eating Christ's flesh and drinking Christ's blood. What that means is simply to believe in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing that we see about feeding on Christ from this passage. The second is that feeding on Christ or believing involves, in the commentator Leon Morris's words, taking Christ into your innermost being. This is the purpose of such graphic language, to emphasize this point. Superficial dealings with Christ will not do. As long as Christ remains outside of you, you do not have eternal life. The same way that a hungry man, merely seeing food, thinking about food, having a correct intellectual understanding of the digestive system, will not satiate him nor keep him alive. He must take that food and appropriate it by ingesting it, by bringing that food from outside of himself into himself. By bringing that food into his innermost being. It is not enough that there is food, you must eat it. You must take it into your innermost being. It is not enough that Christ's body was broken. It is not enough that Christ's blood was shed. But you must take that and bring it into your innermost being. You must not have superficial or external dealings with Christ. You cannot simply come to church Sunday by Sunday for the duration of your life and appear before the judgment seat of God and say, I know that there was a Savior. I know that Christ's body was broken and His blood was shed at Calvary. I know that whoever believes in Him has eternal life. This is the question. Did you take Christ Jesus into your innermost being? Did you eat and drink of Christ? That's the issue. You can't say, well, I studied doctrine. I have a theology degree. I graduated from seminary or Bible college or whatever institute. That is not enough. My family was Christian. We had family worship. That is not enough. I read the Bible from cover to cover. That is not enough. These are external dealings with Christ. 
He is the bread of life. And the bread of life is to be ingested, taken into your innermost being. When we read, for example, in the institution of the Lord's Supper, that Christ's body was broken for us, that His blood was shed for us, or in Peter's epistle, that He suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous. When we read this language of for, what does it mean? As I mentioned earlier in the service, it means that our bodies ought to have been broken. Our blood ought to have been shed. The wrath of God ought to have been poured out upon us. Because we have violated God's law. Each and every one of us, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one does right. No one seeks for God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Ah, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus' body was broken as a substitute for sinners. His blood was shed as a substitute for sinners. This is what it means when he says it was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. What benefit is it to me? You did something for me? How does it benefit me? I don't understand. This is how it benefits. It would have been you if it was not me. That's what it means. My body, it was broken for you. My blood was shed for you. That's what happened at Calvary. Jesus died in the place of those He came to save. There is nothing lacking in His atonement. But we don't just sit passively and do nothing about it. Look at it, admire it from a distance, keep it external to us. We place faith in that work. We believe in that work. And that doesn't mean just I accept that it happened. Like I believe cognitively that there used to be a Roman Empire. And over it was a Caesar. And then that empire collapsed. And I believe those things. We don't just believe in Calvary like that. We don't just believe in Jesus like that. That's external. That's just merely just having superficial externalized dealings with Christ the way that you deal with any history book or science book or something like this. For us to benefit from what was done at Calvary, we must eat and drink of Christ. We must move from dealing with Him externally to dealing with Him internally. The way that a hungry man must move from dealing with food externally to dealing with food internally. We must appropriate the work of Christ by believing in Him. Believing in Him is the same thing as eating and drinking of Him. But believing in Him is not just this merely external thing. Feeding on Him is not just having external superficial dealings with Him. It's not just learning doctrine about Him and so on and so forth. 
As Leon Morris said, eating and drinking Christ's flesh and blood appears to be a very graphic way of saying that people must take Christ into their innermost being. The third thing that we see about feeding on Christ in this passage is that feeding on Christ results in a profound relationship of He in me and I in Him. Look at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. You have close relationships with many people on this earth. There is no relationship in which you can say, I am in him and he is in me. The the very closest thing is marriage. And we read in the scripture that the two shall become one flesh. But you still don't describe your marriage as I am in her and she is in me. Or I am in him and he is in me. You still don't reach that level of intimacy. There is something extremely profound about this statement of Jesus. That whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, or in other words, believes in me, abides in me. That somehow our life is wrapped up in Jesus. And somehow Jesus' life is wrapped up in us. The theologians discuss and expound in great detail and, in fact, great complexity about how exactly that is and what exactly that means. But suffice it for today's purposes simply to acknowledge that there is something very profound being spoken of here. Something of which that joining of two persons together in marriage is a picture, as Ephesians 5 teaches us. But the reality is greater than the picture itself. There is something deep and profound about coming to Christ in faith, feeding on Him, Eating his flesh and drinking his blood, as it were. It puts us in a relationship to Jesus, in which Jesus says, This is not plural. They in me and I in them. But he in me and I in him. Believer, you are profoundly connected to Christ Jesus. Now this is not, we are not in one another as a mirror image or in a symmetrical way, as one commentator pointed out. Jesus is in us as Savior, as Lord, as bread of life. And of course, we are not in Him as His Savior, as His Lord, as His bread of life. And so this is not a symmetrical Coherence. The way in which Christ is in us differs from the way in which we are in Him. We are in Him as dependence. Nevertheless, there is a profound relationship established by faith in Christ. And this is both forensic or legal and experiential. Legally, 
we are connected to Christ in such a way that He is our representative before God. And we are entitled to all that is His by virtue of our connection with Him. That everything that He won and merited by His obedient life, by His death on the cross, by His resurrection, by the fulfillment of the work that the Father gave to Him, all that He merited by that, we are entitled to. Because He is our federal head or covenant head or covenantal representative, whatever language you want to use. The point is that what is Jesus, what belongs to Jesus as the mediator by virtue of His Word, we are entitled to share in that because of our legal connection to Him. And so we are in Christ in that sense. You see that phrase come up so many times throughout the New Testament. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And part of what that means, what that means on many occasions, is that legal, in Christ. But there is a sense in which we are experientially in Christ, or qualitatively in Christ. It's not merely something that's on paper, but is not a reality. We can all think of, for example, policies at work, which are not followed. Everybody can relate to that, I think, at some level. On paper, this is the way it's supposed to be, but in reality, it's not the way it is. The difference between de jure and de facto, what ought to be by legal right, or or by the rules, and then what actually is in fact. We are in Christ legally, but also experientially. De jure and de facto. We are actually connected to Christ Jesus as believers in Him. If we have come to feed on Christ, to drink His blood and eat His flesh, to believe in Him, then His Spirit actually indwells us. Romans 8 says, Whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So it is not possible for a believer not to have the Spirit of Christ. This is profound. God dwells within us as believers. And in this, we experience this He in us and we in Him dynamic by this connection that we have to Him through His Spirit. So the first of four things that we are seeing today about feeding on Christ is that feeding on Christ is another way of describing belief. When Jesus talks about eating His flesh and drinking His blood, He's not talking about a new thing. He's talking about the same thing, just in a metaphorical way. The second thing is that this feeding on Christ or believing involves taking Christ into your innermost being. It's not just mere mental assent, cognitive acceptance of certain facts about Jesus or certain doctrines about Jesus, but there's a taking Him into our innermost being, receiving Him into our innermost being. The third thing is that feeding on Christ 
results in a profound relationship of he in me and I in him. The fourth thing that we see about feeding on Christ is that it results in eternal life. We've seen this throughout this passage. Again, if believing and feeding is the same thing, we could look back even at earlier sections, like whoever looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. We could import that if believing and feeding on Christ is the same reality. But we see it also explicitly in this text, in this section of the text that we're looking at today. Look at verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 57. Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. The end of verse 58. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. If you have got to verse 59 of John chapter 6 and it is not crystal clear to you that believing in Jesus results in eternal life, there's, there's something wrong. <laughs> something has gone awry. Something has gone amiss. Because it's so evident and so plain. Jesus has told us so many times. It's not like He just said it once and maybe you missed that verse. He's repeated it. He said it plainly without metaphors and He's saying it now again with metaphors. But the metaphor is not really that hard to understand. Let's be honest. I am the bread of life. Eat of me and you will live. That's not that hard. And so, by the end of John chapter, by the time we get to John chapter 6 and verse 59, this should be real clear to us. Feeding on Christ, which is believing in Him, results in eternal life. Remember that the context of this miracle of feeding the 5,000 and then the conversation the next day is that the Passover is at hand. John chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, and it goes on to tell us he fed the 5,000 as a sign. In other words, as we discussed a number of weeks ago, Jesus intended us to see him, the bread of life, as uh, a Passover meal. And the Passover lamb in Exodus was slaughtered the night of the, Egypt, of the Exodus from Egypt. The night when the Jews left their slavery. And the, the blood of the Passover lamb was painted onto the doorposts of each home. And so the Passover lamb died for them. In order that they might live and not die. The Passover lamb died as a substitute. At the Passover meal, they also ate bread. And that bread was obviously sustenance for their physical bodies. It was eat because you've got a long journey ahead of you. You're leaving Egypt now. Eat. You need sustenance, life. But it symbolized also their exodus. And so this Passover meal, year by year, had these themes woven into it of substitution of life, of the provision of God for them to eat and drink and live as free men. Feeding on Christ is bringing these themes to fulfillment. 
the Passover lamb, the Passover bread. We sang and read scriptures focusing on the transcendence of God. His imminence is His closeness. His transcendence is His otherness. His glory, His majesty, the gravity of who God is. And we we read from Psalm 113 of God who is over everything. Who, Who is like God? The rhetorical question is asked and the implicit answer is no one. We sang holy, holy, holy. We sang, let all mortal flesh keep silence. And I mentioned in introducing that song that I I find that it conveys the gravity of the incarnation. Christ our God to earth descendeth. Rank on rank the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way. As the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day. Why? That the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. At his feet the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence as with ceaseless voice they cry. This is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 6 in which Isaiah sees the angels with With two wings they're flying. With two they cover their feet and with two they cover their eyes. They can't even behold the glory of God. Alleluia. 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 Lord Most High. In our hymn book, for whatever reason, to my regret... They omitted the second verse of that song. Listen. King of kings, yet born of Mary. As of old on earth he stood. This God. Lord of lords. In human vesture. In the body and the blood. He will give to all the faithful. His own self for heavenly food. Consider this God of whom we sing, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah saw the angels covering their eyes that they could not even behold His glory. This God to earth descendeth. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Look at what Jesus says here in this passage. At the end of verse 51, the bread that I will give, not the bread that I have given, not the bread that I am presently giving, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It is by Jesus giving Himself, suffering in our place, His body breaking for us, His blood being shed for us, 
after having become incarnate for us and living a life of obedience for us who were disobedient. The life, the pardon me, the bread that He will give for the life of the world is His flesh. Oh, the love that drew salvation's blood. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf between a transcendent, holy, holy, holy God and sinful man. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did spare at Calvary. Whoever eats Christ's flesh, that he says at this time he will give. It's yet to happen. From our vantage point, it has happened. Whoever eats the bread that he gave, which was his flesh, whoever drinks his blood, has eternal life. Take hold of what happened at Calvary. Don't just come to church week by week. Don't just have external dealings with Christ. Don't just read about Him in a book. Don't just sing about Him from a hymn book. Don't just listen as your family members and your friends talk about Him. Don't even just listen as they talk about how they have eaten and drunk of Him. You, each and every one of you, eat and drink of Christ Jesus. Believe in Him. Take Him into your innermost being. Enter into this relationship where He is in you and you are in Him. And you will have eternal life. That is the obvious most basic application of this passage. No other bread gives life, you understand. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Okay, so literally even eating miraculous bread from God will not give you eternal life. If literally the Lord gives you bread, actual bread to eat with your physical body from heaven, even that will not give you eternal life. Much less anything else. Like the, like the vitamins that you take to preserve your health. Right? Like, like the healthy diet that you maintain to preserve your health. Or like whatever else you're hoping on the last day, your morality. Remember? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whatever else it is that you think will give you eternal life will not. Well, what then? What is the food that we can eat? What is the drink that we can drink which will give us eternal life? Jesus answers that question in 55. My flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. In other words, even food and drink is just a picture of Christ. A dim type of the anti-type, which is Christ. A dim photocopy on a bad photocopying machine where the density settings are not right. Of that original master copy, which is Christ. Eat and drink 
even bread, even like manna from heaven, and you will die, much less vegetables and meat and potatoes. You will die, but His flesh and blood is true drink and true food. Eat of Him and you will live. Don't rest your hope anywhere else. Rest your hope in Him. And do so not only in the first place, but on an ongoing basis. Again, we circle back around to this idea in verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Recognize, believer, that you abide in Christ, and Christ abides in you. And feed on him day by day. Believing is not something we do in the beginning and then we stop believing. It's something that we do better or worse every day of our lives. Do it better. Enjoy that relationship with Christ in which you abide in Him and He abides in you. Make use of it. Utilize it. Enjoy it. Appreciate it. There's a car in the driveway, so to speak. Drive it. It's a hot day and there's air conditioning in the hotel room. Turn it on. Utilize it. Christ abides in you, believer, and you in Him. Feed on Him then, not just in the first place, but day by day, by faith. Your Christian experience can be better. Your Christian inheritance can't be better. But your day-to-day Christian experience can be better. Let me explain that and unpack that. Remember we talked about legal, forensic, versus experiential or qualitative? This can't change. The legal, forensic can't change. You are united to Christ. And all that God intends for His people to have is yours in Him. So your inheritance can't actually get better. You have as much access to the blessings of the new covenant as any believer ever has, including the apostles, the reformers, the Puritans, whoever you esteem. You have as much access as they have. Understand that. And that cannot change. This is your union with Christ, which cannot change. It cannot fluctuate. It is your possession. It cannot change. It cannot be improved. It cannot be lost. You are kept for an inheritance which is kept for you, the Apostle Peter tells us. But listen, your experience of communion with Christ, experientially your enjoyment of that relationship in which you stand to Him by faith, things like your holiness, your joy, These things can ebb and flow, you understand. One day you can live more obediently to God than the next, or less obediently to God than the next. One day you may be happier in Christ than the next. One day you may be less happy in Christ than the next. This can fluctuate. What happens is a lot of times people conflate these two things. And so they think, well, one day I'm saved because I'm obedient and joyful, and the next day I'm not saved because I'm not obedient and joyful. And they conflate these two things. But understand that there are two aspects of the relationship into which we come 
by faith in Christ. And believer, feed on Christ day by day. Not so that you will be saved, as if you're not yet. Not so that your union with Christ won't be lost, as if it could be. But so that you may enjoy this he and me and I and him relationship. So that you may experience a deeper and more profound communion with God. So that the joy of the Lord might be your strength. So unbeliever, feed on Christ in the first place. But believers, continue feeding on Christ day by day. For His flesh is true food and His blood is true drink. Nothing else compares. The next application of this passage is that we should understand the relationship of the Lord's Supper to eternal life. In church history, some came to understand and interpret this passage as Jesus is teaching about the Supper, communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. That the bread here is literally Jesus' body. And that the cup here is literally Jesus' blood. This is called transubstantiation, and this is the doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church still holds. And it's a blasphemous and erroneous doctrine in so many ways. But let me just show you from this passage that that's not what Jesus means here. He's not talking about this is eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Let me just show you that, that that's not what he means from this passage. Jesus says in this passage, in verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Okay. Now, if that is Jesus' body, that bread, and if that cup is Jesus' blood, and if this is what Jesus meant in this passage, then literally, if you eat that and drink that, you have eternal life. Which basically means that we should be really focused on getting everybody to just merely externally participate in the sacrament. And that it doesn't really matter whether people exercise faith in Christ Jesus or not, so long as they're externally participating in this. And isn't that actually what we do see happening in many of these um, circles in which that sort of view is adopted? I was watching a movie about uh, mobsters, mafia guys, and in one of the scenes they're all there in the church, and one of the babies is being baptized. And the priest is speaking Latin as he baptizes the baby. And you see all these mafia guys sitting there. Let's be honest, isn't that what has actually happened? 
that there actually is basically a disregard so long as you just observe the external eating and drinking, then you're a member of the church. Right? If that's what Jesus meant in 54, then the Roman Catholics are right and basically we should just pretty much just try to get people to eat this and drink this. But again, remember the first thing that we learned about feeding on Christ today. Feeding on Christ is the same thing as believing. It's coterminous with believing. We see in this passage in in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. And as I mentioned, it's not as if there are two ways. Well, one way is you can believe. The next way is you could just eat and drink. That's not the sense of this passage at all. And I'm not going to exhaustively try to make that point. I think it's actually self-evident. If you read this passage, Jesus is not teaching that there are two ways. One way is to believe and the other way is just to literally eat the communion bread and drink the communion cup. I think that's pretty self-evident from looking at John chapter 6. If you give it an honest look. If you're confused about that or want to talk more about that, I'm happy to do that. But I'm not going to spend the time here and now explaining that in great detail. Jesus is not, in this section, speaking of the Lord's table. He's not saying that if you eat the bread of communion and drink the cup of communion you will live forever that's not what he's doing here in this passage it doesn't it would be theologically inconsistent not only with the rest of the bible but also with even just the first half of John chapter 6 to draw such a conclusion second of all it doesn't work with the chronology of when Jesus said this and when the Lord's table was actually instituted. So in other words, there would be people who would be standing here listening to Jesus, and Jesus would be teaching, you have to eat of the sacrament of communion, or the Lord's table, or the Eucharist, in the New Covenant Church, in order to live. And then, inevitably, some of these people, I'm sure, would have died before that was ever instituted. Because at this point, it wasn't as yet. So it just doesn't, those are just a couple of simple arguments to help you think it through. Because at first glance we could, we could be forgiven at first glance for kind of reading through and be like, oh, this is about communion. But it's not, for the reasons that I've explained. Having said that, what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 6 is the same thing that is visually represented in the Supper. A theologian named Godet says, Both the Holy Supper and the discourse in John chapter 6 refer to one and the same divine reality. Expressed here in John chapter 6 by a metaphor, and there in the Holy Supper by an emblem. In other words, Jesus teaches us that we have to eat and drink of Him by faith. And that by eating and drinking of Him, by faith, we have life. The Lord's Supper teaches us that we need to eat and drink of Him by faith. 
and that by eating and drinking of him by faith, we have life. So John chapter 6 and the Lord's Supper are actually teaching us the same thing. Even though Jesus was not teaching us about the Lord's Supper. So in the Lord's Supper, we do not gain salvation by eating and drinking. We gain eternal life by believing in Christ Jesus. By eating and drinking of Christ Jesus by faith. That's how we gain eternal life. Again, Augustine or Augustine, believe and you have eaten. Another way we might say is, uh, eating is believing. They're the same thing. So in the Lord's Supper, we do not gain salvation. We do not gain eternal life. We gain that by believing in Christ Jesus. But we do have a profound representation in the Lord's table. A profound representation of the method of salvation. Which is eating and drinking of Christ Jesus. This is what is visualized. This is what is symbolized as we eat and drink. I have eaten and I have drunk of Christ Jesus. And I live. This is what is visualized as we partake in these elements. And Christ communes with us. We have an experience of this He in me and I in Him as we eat and drink. His Spirit makes the things of Christ present to us and real to us, even though this is not literally the body of Christ and literally the blood of Christ. Christ is communing with us in the supper which is one reason why we call it communion it's not just the communion of the saints but it's the communion of the saints with Christ Jesus so with this in mind all of these things in mind let us now prepare our hearts to eat and to drink of Christ Jesus as we come to the communion table. We eat and drink of Christ Jesus by faith, not by ingesting the bread and the cup, but forbid that we should drink the cup and eat the bread without eating and drinking of Christ Jesus by faith.